Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, another edition of Sandos and the Sidekick in this Veterans Day. First of all, happy Veterans Day to all the veterans out there, whether you serve, have family members, whatever. It's always a special day, and I know that I'm going to eat a lot today uh, because, you know, it's free. And I'm like a media guy slash army guy. We like to eat free a lot. So lots to talk about. Oh, gosh, lots to talk about today. We will talk ETSU football. We will talk Southern Conference football, the big matchup, and then the matchup. That may be canceled due to lack of interest by me. I don't know if I can actually do that in that game, but we'll find out. And we'll talk ETSU Buck basketball, Southern Conference preview, the Buck buzzer beater, binocular, binominals, whatever that, whatever's with the beat. You may get the title right. Uh, That's okay. It's uh, you know what I do. You know what I do. Happy Veterans Day to you. Before we start, I mean, without Mm -hmm. you and all your other fellow service members that have served over all the years, we wouldn't be able to sit here and stammer, yammer, and blabber on and on about. Things that, in the grand scheme of things, I know you and me love, the university loves, and our fans love, but uh, quite honestly are pretty insignificant compared to what you deal with on a day-to-day basis and dealt with on a day-to-day basis and the fight that is being fought overseas and domestically and everywhere that service members are. So, appreciate you, as always. That that it never ends, and obviously holiday time, too, uh, coming around. I've missed many, many holidays, a lot of those folks. Um, I will say we did donate a bunch of candy. That was a thing that happened a couple of years ago where if you have leftover holiday candy, there's got drop-offs, and they will send the troops the leftover Halloween candy. And for me, I just need to get it out of the house. I was eating all the candy instead of the kids. It's getting ugly, so need to do that as well. Let's start a little ETSU football with Western Carolina. I thought I would rattle off some Western stats before we got really going um, today as uh, Western Carolina – Three straight, right, since 2018, first three-game win streak in league play since 2015. Western Carolina, three and eight in overtime, random stat. But they're two and one against ETSU, and I bring that up because two of the last three years, ETSU and Western Carolina have played in overtime. The one they didn't win the what? three overtime. Throwing. They did not win that one. They won the 98 when I was a student. I remember going over to Culloween watching that game. I thought it was interesting in the Furman game, going back and watching it, it was actually highly entertaining. There was, the first punt happened at the 7-0-2 mark in the fourth quarter. So you're talking about touchdowns. You're talking about um, lots of turnovers. I turnovers. There was a miss. There was a miss field goal. There was a non-conversion on fourth down, but it was up and down the field. Um, so it was interesting game to watch as far as it go back and forth. West Carolina has given up back-to-back 300-yard rushing games now. They're now surpassed VMI for league worst in yards per game given up on the ground, 240. 
And this is the two stats that are baffling that I wanted to go over before we get giving bad. I'm going to get into good because Western does have some good that we need to talk about. Worst red zone defense um, in the conference, 43 of 46 teams converting in the red zone. But here's what's just got it. 46 Four, red zone trips. 46 <laughs> red zone trips, 43 scores, 40 touchdowns. Oh, my God. They have given up 40 touchdowns out of the 46 trips. That's why they're giving up a worst 41.6 points per contest. Now, they're also the worst turnover margins. This makes sense. They're minus 10, 27 turnovers, 16 interceptions, and this seemed like a typo too. 25 fumbles. They've lost 11. Teams have scored 121 points off turnovers. So clearly, turnovers, the red zone defense, you can see the rushing yards given up, how they've struggled. Now, you flip that, and Sanford has scored, or Sanford, uh, Western has scored three straight 40 point or more games. They've got offensive linemen back. So they were missing in the middle stretch of the year eight of their ten two-deep offensive linemen. They've gotten them back last three games. Points are starting to come up. Clearly, Carlos Davis filled in nicely for Rogan Wells. Wells, a tremendous dual-threat guy. Even if they don't call a lot of runs, he certainly can break free. Had 90-some yards rushing uh, the last game, including a 33-yard touchdown. They are Sanford esque except for they throw the ball vertically a lot. And so they want to stand in the pocket and basically let three or four deep routes go. And if you're going cover two, you're going cover three. You're man-to-man just the longer all those crossings and deep crossers and deep verticals go, somebody's going to be open or Rogan Wells gets a running lane. So they have a nice designed offense that has allowed them to pick up all those uh, total yards. And so that makes sense why the turnovers are as high as they are. Interceptions, 16 thrown this year. And so if you're throwing a lot of balls vertically, you know, the interesting thing about that is, uh, think about the turnovers last week from VMI. Obviously the fumble in the red zone, critical. But the interceptions, you know, you're working on, really they're middle of the field routes, right? Like middle distance, you know, 10 to 20 yards. If you're throwing it, you know, 30, 40, 50 yards downfield and somebody has to go up and at the apex make a play, odds are they're probably going to come down to their back or knee or something to be down at that spot. That does sort of act as not a atomic bomb, as a Steve Forbes uh, old cliche would be used here out of sports, but in context, I think, where you don't have that big field flip, right? Because that's what ETSU was able to do against VMI. They had the interceptions, but then they were also able to take one down, you know, right inside the red zone, and then the other, you know, set them up in the short field as well. So when you're able to do that, it's almost a double negative, right? Like not only if you turned it over, you're also setting up the other team in scoring position, but if you're throwing a lot of them deep and you have those interceptions, you know, 40, 50 yards downfield, that's not quite as bad. But the stat that is incredible is those 25 fumbles. I mean, that just is outlandish and absurd. I mean, I'm not sure I've heard of a team fumbling that many times in a full season. Now we're almost to the end of the season. But we also have to say that, you know, people don't generally talk about um, fumbles that are not recovered um, by the opponent. So I guess I maybe I'm not as versed on that stat as just fumble recoveries in general. Regardless, Turnovers are going to play a big factor in this game as they played a big factor last week. It's almost a guarantee. What ETSU has to make sure that they don't do is get caught in a turnover battle, right? Because when you've got a team like Western that is going to give you some opportunities, you just have to play within yourself. And ETSU has done a great job of doing that 
so much of the year. As long as you don't make out-of-character mistakes, this is largely going to be, in many people's minds, a game that you can win by multiple scores, right? Now, Randy Sanders, of course, made some good points on Monday about Western Carolina coming in with momentum, maybe not necessarily being a team that those from the outside will look at and say, oh, three and six. You know, I, they're probably not going to bring much to the table. But it's not about records. It's not about how good Randy Sanders or ETSU thinks Western Carolina is. It's about how good Western Carolina thinks Western Carolina is. And he referenced some examples of that over time that he's seen. When you get that belief in your own locker room and you come out and play with some reckless abandon, absurd confidence for how your season has shaped 40-plus points in the last three games, that's the first time that they've scored 40-plus in three straight since the end of the regular season in 1983, a very famous season for the Catamounts, which I was unaware of, quite honestly, not a Catamount historian or anything, but they went to the D1AA title game. Now, of course, FCS, but D1AA at that time lost to Southern Illinois, first SOCON school to make the FCS title game. Furman, Marshall, Appalachian State, Georgia Southern have since. I, I think the difference here is this is not an FCS title game contender in Western Carolina this year, and ETSU just ended a similar streak of VMIs that saw the Kedets score 45-plus in back-to-back weeks for the first time since 1922, and all the Bucks did was hold them to three first-half points and 20 points on the day last Saturday. And you've got a quarterback coming off of a huge day in terms of statistics in the run and pass game. Seth Morgan, two weeks back, sets, what, the all-time SoCon total yardage record, and Rogan Wells last week, I think, had like 470, 480, something like that, threw for like 386, and then added 70 or 80 on the ground, whatever it was. So shockingly similar things to me coming into this week as it was coming into last week. And, of course, naturally it was a one-score game, but ETSU took a lot of the stats, the figures, and the accolades that VMI had coming into Saturday, slid them aside, won the game, and because of the familiarity of the situation, I don't expect that to be too different this week. But I do think that of the last two games that ETSU has, away against Western this week, Blue Ridge border battle, covered 1230 Buccaneer Sports Network, 2 o'clock kickoff. And then Mercer, two weeks from now, two Saturdays from now, 1 o'clock kick, 1130 pregame, Buccaneer Sports Network on the 20th. I think the more dangerous game is this one. Yeah, you know, I, I think because it's, it's certainly a team that has nothing to lose. I think the motivation factor for ETSU versus Mercer, one, you get home games, you get hopefully another 10,000 packed in the green stadium. Second thing is that's the team that ended your chance last year for a playoff that a lot of the defensive players that were thinking about not coming back in the fall came back for a chance to play in a playoffs, a chance to win a conference championship. So if that game didn't sit well with them then, I'm assuming then – That'll be a game sort of marked on ETSU's calendar, but you have to get through. And, you know, when you look at the schedule, for regardless of what how it played out, and it's played out similar to how we thought it would play out, you know, ETSU, VMI, Mercer would be contending for a title. And so you kind of knew Western would be a sandwich game. And I've been touting from the front. I thought they would be tough to you know, get out, especially at their place. And they played Sanford to, you know, one-score game. They had Mercer tied in the fourth quarter. Mercer was able to get a touchdown, force a turnover, get a late field goal to win by 10 in the fourth quarter. Um, Certainly Furman, tough loss for the Paladins there. So it has been tough for 
Western Carolina go. But confidence-wise, right, you're 0-6, then all of a sudden you rattle three in a row. It's very difficult to, to sit there and say, well, they're just going to be Western Carolina bold and lay down. I mean, last year, this team that I've seen on film is much better than last year's squad, and last year's squad gave ETSU fits. Remember, they jumped out to a 17-7 to lead, and ETSU had to battle back to end up winning 24-17. Matter of fact, Carlos Davis made the one-play appearance on the double pass. And it was his first collegiate pass through a 44-yard strike down the field. First Division One pass. As he was first, that's fair. He was a JUCO guy, um, but still, uh, you know, I think the speed of Western Carolina will shock ETSU early because again, it's it's difficult to simulate certain things at certain speed, just like the triple option, just like Sanford going fast. Now Western goes fast, but they're just not quick game. They can run quick game. They'll hand it off to keep you honest, but honestly, they're wanting to take shots down the field. I mean, you look at the receivers, and all receivers or running backs or anybody that has played their long receptions. And I'm just going to go, instead of reading everybody's name, I'm just going to read the longs. 40, 85, 40, 72, 43, 54, 32, 58, 39, 39. Wow. So... Just one, which means obviously if guys have 72, they could have a 40 or 50 yarder on the books too. But just that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten guys have at least a reception of 32 yards That's or more. Incredible. I mean, that is impressive. And they use their running backs to come out of the backfield. Their two leading receivers are Kenny Benjamin and TJ Jones. So even if you cover down the field. And you've got some of the speedsters and Williams and Jones and Horn and Patton and Kosinghe all covered up. Guess what? They just dump it off to a running back, and then there's nobody there to make a tackle. I mean, watching the Kenny Benjamin, I thought Benjamin was was split out and did something. I didn't realize he literally started beside the quarterback in shotgun formation and just ran vertically up the field, and the linebackers passed him off, and it was a cover two, and both outside – Safeties went to the outside guys, and he just ran straight down the field. I guess when I saw that originally, I thought it was a different type route, different type set, and he got lost. He literally just ran about 93 yards from the snap and just straight down the field, and then, and then nobody was able to catch him for the for the game winner and a very curious end of Furman attempting the 62-yarder. But still. I thought that play only worked on Madden. I used to run that play all the time. It all goes you know, on each side oh, of the yeah. receivers. But then, hey, running back straight up the field. Nobody covered him. And that's exactly what happened with Furman. It, it, it's one of those. Th- I mean, it's just incredible to me. All right, so we've added up the the 10 plays, of th- or at least 30, uh, or 10 catches, at least 39 yards or more, which guys could have more than that. Because I just have their long, I didn't look at individual catches for everybody. Quite sure they do have more than that. Then you throw T.J. Jones has a 53-yard touchdown run, and Rogan Wells has an 82-yard touchdown run out of the run game as well. And so just, uh, and he has 33-yarder in the game against Furman. So this is just a big play team. I think the game plan, and I try to press Coach Sanders Wednesday, and I think he all but admitted it. It's going to be similar to what we saw at BMI which means the running backs will get a lot of catches, and there will be plays, and there will be drives, and Rogan Wells will be able to extend a drive because ETSU's always had a little bit of trouble with the running quarterback, and Wells runs much more than Liam Welch, who ETSU could not tackle. So I I do think the depth of the defensive line will help. I do think Zion Alexander uh, being able to play some more nickel, and even you know even if he needs a spell and George Otomegwu can come in, I feel like 
ETSU will make them try to play like VMI and have to earn their way down the field. They'll get impatient, they'll force throws, and they'll be turnovers. They had two fumbles, two interceptions in the Birmingham. And two of the fumbles on the runs, it was like as soon as they got hit, it, the ball just popped out. Like they, Ball security is not a thing for them. The passes, unlike where I've seen Rogan Wells overthrow guys a lot, both the passes that were intercepted actually hit the receivers in the hands and then deflected either further down the field or just slightly to the left to the defender that was behind, and they ended up kind of, ooh, look what I found. So I do feel like ETSU will be able to force turnovers. I mean, they have 27 turnovers in nine games. So they're going to turn the football over. I don't think that's even a question. If if West Carolina does not turn over the football, then ETSU will be in a lot of trouble. That, that would I would say that. But if West Carolina turns over the football and ETSU is able to go down the field and score, and I think Western is fine trying to make teams grind on them, and I think that fits perfect in ETSU and what they want to do. I think they are fine if West Carolina is like, you know what, we're going to play two deep shell. We're only going to have six or seven in the box. We're going to play some press coverage on the outside. But you are not going to hit any deep plays. The Will Huzzy deep ball of the last two or three weeks is not going to be there. That's not what they're wanting. At least that's what they've shown every other game I've watched. I've watched about five of them now. So I think they're going to dare ETSU to sort of grind it out. And just like Furman was like, okay, fine, we'll hand it off to Roberto. Fine, we'll hand it off, we'll hand it off. I think ETSU is going to be fine in this game because the numbers will say for Coach Sanders, hey, turn around hand it off. And I think they will be able to – keep it on the ground, they'll keep the clock moving, limit some possessions for Western Carolina, try to make West Carolina go length of the field, and this game will play out, I think, similarly to how we saw VMI, in my opinion. Yeah, and you would have to have been living under a Southern Conference rock to not know this oldest time story, and we talked about it in the spring, found the stat, I had to go back and look it up again just to make sure I had it right, because it is almost uh, unconscionable to think of. But Western Carolina's rush defense, bottom two every year since 2005 in the SoCon. Outside of one season, they were third to last. So improvement that year, though that was not sustained, obviously. And as you mentioned, new last place team. In terms of rushing defense, after they gave up 316 rush yards to Furman, averaging 242 per game. And that's kind of what I was getting at early on, and I'm glad you mentioned the Coach Sanders you know, semi-admitted last night in the coaches show that this is how things would be. It's going to be a similar game plan because they're similar situations. They're similar teams. Now, they may attack how they go about passing the ball a little bit differently, right? Um, defensively, one team a little bit better than the other, right? VMI was giving up, I think, 31 per game going into the ETSU game. And, and to their credit, held the Bucks under 30 when ETSU was averaging 34 per game coming in on offense, where Western is, like, by six full points, bottom of the league, in scoring defense. So, you know, that defense for the Catamounts, you look at the last few weeks, and for the Citadel game, just keep in mind, they haven't really played a lot of opponents over the last, you know, three weeks, those three wins. I mean, if you, if you read those fear. three records, right, exactly. if you just read would, that. They don't strike fear into anyone. Against the Citadel – the Bulldogs um, had their second most points of the FCS season. Furman tied their most of the entire season against Western. And the Catamounts were solid against Wofford before the final quarter when the game was already over. They're not a horrible pass defense, and that's what I think will lead to ETSU running it more. 
when hearing Coach Sanders last night break down how they differ from VMI in the secondary, in fact, that they're not just going to go man-on-man on the outside and be in one-on-one. They are going to drop safeties more and have some support in pass defense. That has worked. They're middle of the league, allowing 210 yards per game through the air. But as we mentioned, bottom of the league in scoring defense, the defensive approach, and I think it's hard because maybe it's not even the defensive approach is the wrong way to put it. Because Coach Sanders made a good point last night. You just put your defense in some very difficult situations when you want to get on and off the field and hit big plays as an offense. But then also, when you do turn it over three times per game, consistently every game, sometimes more, and every time you look up, they're fumbling, right? 25 fumbles since he said, and 11 have been given away. You know, there's going to be issues for a defense that is exhausted and also backed up against their own goal line at least a time or two per game. Um, Things have gotten a little bit better in league play for the defense. They're sixth in total defense, third in passing defense, and third in interceptions in league play. Seven of them, including the pick six last week, which I think came like less than a minute into the game. Um, And so that's where I really have to hammer again that because this defense has been a bit opportunistic, and again, credit to them because it's difficult to beat in the situations that they're in. Tyler Idell has to make sure that he is not putting the ball just up for grabs. And that's going to be tough for Tyler because if the game plan is similar to what it was last week against VMI, that's essentially all the Bucks did in the past game. Now, they trust their guys to win, right? Malik Murray had a couple of deep shots, and then the rest was essentially Will Huzzy. And so with Will Huzzy being what he is, and at this point he may be, I don't know your thoughts on it, but he may be, the best receiver in the league. There is some solid competition. I think a lot of people would look over at Raleigh Webb, quite honestly, and say, well, he's probably a top two or three guy, even though he doesn't have the stats. Um, And then around the rest of the league, there's other contenders, including Raphael Williams for Western Carolina, who had 194 yards at Tusculum in the spring. That was it. But he's got five 100-yard games this year, and then you mentioned it. I mean, Kenny Benjamin and T.J. Jones out of the backfield, those are their other two big threats in the passing game, so the Bucs will have to make sure to keep their eyes on them. But Will Huzzy is right there at the top of the league. Of course, Jacob Harris is another one. I don't want to you know, chat about it without mentioning it here, but over time has proven to be one of the top receivers in this league. Um, so there is good competition, but Will Huzzy is, I think, right there with pretty much all of them. So trust him to win. But this week it maybe is a little bit more dangerous because Western has shown the ability – to end those drives on well and, and you know again they they tend to play cover two over the top press man coverage on the outside cover two so the straight go routes that we've seen the last two weeks i don't think particularly is going to be there got to have those 15 20 yard right on the sideline or straight down the middle behind the linebacker you know, in front of the safety right? yes got there'll be a lot of it, 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 it will be yeah. a lot similar to how etsu if you take out the last two games just because of the style of defense that Furman and VMI play, then this is going to look back to more what Wofford Citadel and some of those teams. And even Citadel stacked the box some and dared you to throw it, but they still backed up and played some zone here and there. So there'll be opportunities for some underneath throws, some crossers, some middle, again, you know, uh, stop and goes, comebacks, uh, little out routes. And so quick passing game, some for ETSU. The screen game will be back in play again. That's something I think Furman tried a couple of times. So yeah, as long as I don't see the wide receiver screen, uh, ETSU seems to be the only <laughs> team in America 
that one guy misses the most important guy and it gets blown up immediately. You don't but, like the bubble? You don't like the jailbreak? I don't. I don't. Uh, I, I love I love the running back screens that they do. I'm not a fan of the wide receiver screen ETSU. Other than it seems like since 2018, Keith Coffey had some success. That was it. That's true. And then uh, Hunter White in 2017. But since That's 2018, true. I do not remember a whole lot of wide receiver screens that have been busted for you know 30, 40 yards. Um, as other teams around the country seem to be able to do. You look at Western and some of the games. They played a very good East Kentucky team was back in the top 25 this week, and that was the first game of the year. And Kerwin Bell, Bell told me they threw the kitchen sink at him. Like, he put everything into that game to try to make a statement, trick play, everything you could do, kept it tight, lost. Then you play Oklahoma, you throw it out. Then they play middle of the pack, SoCon team, Sanford, and they were right there, 42-37. Gardner-Webb, who was on a roll early and then has just gone in the tank, blasted Western Carolina. Then you play two of the top teams, and Chattanooga, 45-17 over West Carolina. Mercer, 34-24. So you're having trouble scoring points. That for Gardner-Webb, which, again, and Sanford, who hemorrhages points. But they got to the two or three upper echelon teams, Eastern Kentucky, Chattanooga, Mercer, and you got 28-17-24. Obviously taking Oklahoma out. I think that's, that's fair, right? So – when they've played teams that really have struggled, bottom three in, each, in the Southern Conference, they've scored 43, 41, 45. The middle of the pack team sort of even with them, they've scored 42. But when they play good defenses, and I would say Eastern Kentucky and Chattanooga Mercer would qualify for that, they've had trouble to score. So if you can, similar to what I said about VMI, if you can keep them in the 20s, and I think you gave the stat last week on the VMI under 30, if you keep them under 30, I think ETSU, and really, my 24 number still comes into play here. If you keep them under 24, then ETSU will win the football game because ETSU will be able to score 24 versus Western Carolina. And if ETSU scores 30, high probability, I believe ETSU is going to win that football game. And obviously, if they get to 40, then I don't want to say it's a lock, but certainly I think if ETSU got to 40, I just don't see Western Carolina putting up 40 in this contest. Bucks have to get back to not hurting themselves with penalties. They had only 18 for a four-game stretch combined before they had eight for 95 yards last game. Keep an eye out, of course, for Quay Holmes. Next touchdown sets the all-time scoring record at ETSU. He's got 44 for his career, um, and he's got two games. And presumably, should things go to plan, at least one more game come the FCS postseason to get that. And then you talk about the rushing record. I think he's 297 away. Is that right? 297. 297. So if he gets a playoff game, he only needs 99 and a half yards or whatever. And he's 56 yards away from his career high in rushing yards for a single season. I think that was 1,143, and he's at like 1,087 right now. Has 17 career 100-yard games. Um, do you think this will be a Jacob Sailors or a Quay Holmes game, or both? I, I think both. Um, ETSU, I think three times have rushed for over 200 yards against Western Carolina since football has been back. And so I haven't gone back and seen them individually. I just looked at total rushing yards. And so even in the spring, about 240 yards rushing last year. And, you know, Holmes had a, actually it was 350 last year versus Western. 197 for Quay, and Jacob had 136. So I think it will be similar. They handed the ball 54 times last year. I, I would be shocked if ETSU doesn't hand the ball off and get close to – 411 yards. That would be what I think probably is going to happen. 
in that contest. Look at the 2018 games. They had Sailors for 123, Quay Holmes for 79. Austin Herrick carried it 14 times <laughs> for 45 yards. But you have had big days for, for both. I mean, it, it has been kind of multiple for ETSU's uh, running game. And that 23-20 to 20 overtime loss – uh, Quay Holmes had 166, but that was a day that Jacob Sailors did right. not play. Right, he was he was out, didn't get to play that, so he had to carry almost all. And he was and he was exhausted. That that overtime, and even though he scored or, or got him down there, you could tell because they scored right before the end of regulation to force overtime, and Holmes was just gassed. He did as much. So I feel like it's going to be a game where they do now. Sailors has also kind of snuck up the ranks. Uh, I missed in the middle of the game last week that he he passed um, um, a couple of guys. Derek Collins won. And then he's now, I think, 36 yards behind George Searcy, who's one of the better oh. running backs in tissue history. And then I think he's only 70 yards, so he could actually get to sixth on the all-time rushing list in this game as we keep talking about Quay Holmes. And you don't want to be uh, sleeping on Will Huzzy, who you have touted a lot and spoke highly of a minute ago and well-deserved there. But he's, I think, only nine catches away from top ten all-time, and I think he's only about 60 yards away from being top ten yardage all-time in tissue history. That surprised me. Uh, I know that we've had Huzzy for a few years, and this is his first really big year. I figured that those first couple of years would kind of slow him down in terms of trying to make history, but goodness, he's charging up the charts. And obviously we know since football's been back, he's the number one receiver that ETSU has had in terms of yardage in a season with still a couple of games to go. And he, I think it's obvious. And Coach Sanders kind of dismissed this. He said, oh, you know, we've had other targets, you know, Vinny Lowe and Kobe Kelly and Hey, nothing wrong with Vinny Lowe and Kobe Kelly and some others at ETSU, Dalton Punchilla. You know, they, they were fine receivers. But he then did kind of wilt a little bit and say, yeah, there's no doubt we have a ball. And Will Huzzy is a big part of that. I don't think that what the Bucks did last week against VMI would have been possible in other years in terms of the game plan. Who amongst ETSU's quote-unquote deep threats, whether it's a Keep Coffee or a Vinny Lowe or – um, others that I'm, you know, that aren't coming to mind at the moment. Uh, Hunter Drake Powell. Punchilla, Drake Powell. Um, who could you dial up nine or ten deep shots for and have confidence that that part of the game plan would contribute to a win? I don't think there's someone that has been with ETSU that you could. Um, whereas last week, I, I thought it was just a brilliant game plan on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball. And the Bucks had an extra week last week to put in that game plan, but how helpful is it that then the game that you play right after is a very similar style team in terms of what they want to get done? So j- just to put in perspective, Dalton Ponchilla, I believe, had the most receiving yards since football's been back, yep. and that was in 2015 against a lot of non-Division one teams, and Will Huzzy has smashed that already with 637. With a power five team on the schedule and at just one just Conference. one you know non-FCS so ETSU for a lot of years now they had a couple different 400 receivers so if you don't look at it that way it's kind of evened out where Will Huzzy 673 Atkins and Murray each in the 200 yard range so total passing yards isn't there but as far as you talk about go-to receiver I think no doubt he stepped up plus remember because of the weird last year he's a redshirt sophomore so he would have a shot to smash some records. And then Tyler Keltner, last guy I want to bring up, he's tied third all-time for field goals made. He is now um, top five scoring all-time in ETSU history, and he's got a lot of games left that could possibly 
threaten Clay Holmes' record whenever he's done. So you look at two rushers in the top ten. Will Huzzy's about to get in the top ten, and I would be shocked if he didn't get in the top ten yardage just in this game, but then get top ten catches, uh, if not this game, surely by the Mercer game. And you look at Tyler Keltner, some of the records that he's putting up. So there's a lot going on as far as that. I think, you know, obviously the scoring punch will be there. I think it can't be overstated, the defensive linemen that came back last week and how I thought fresh the defensive linemen looked, having two legitimate guys rotate in, one Rodney Wright getting a sack and then Cayman Cody forcing a fumble in his first game. And I think the way that Western's going to play, let's be honest, they've seen the tape. Everyone sees the tape. Everyone is trying to not substitute so that ETSU's defensive linemen have to stay in there longer. But I think having, like last week, even when they went VMI a little bit quicker, ETSU waiting for a natural break to put those guys in, they just looked different and weren't giving up most of the plays that have been shown on tape. I think that will be similar in this, that some of the guys that you don't notice because of how Billy Taves 3-4 defense is set up, the gap eaters and all that, will be tremendous game changers in this game because they are more rested. they got a bye week. they got more guys back. Watch special teams. They've been an issue for Western and the Bucs. Western 7th in the league in punt average, 8th in kickoff coverage in league play. Last week, ETSU's return game didn't factor in much against one of the better kick coverage units entering the weekend, VMI. Could be back in a big way this week. And last night, Randy Sanders mentioned with you that he's been waiting for Elijah Huzzy to bust a punt return. So keep an eye on both return games for ETSU. Anytime you're going to be able to gain yardage in the special teams sector of the game, I think it's huge. Um, I think that the Bucks, if they can put together a couple of seven- and eight-minute drives and give their defense enough of a break, right? It, you don't got to put together seven- and eight-minute drives all day and outpossess Western 45-15, to 15, but if you can put together one or two and just give the defense enough time to not feel like they're going back out on the field, you know, 60, 90 seconds after they've been out there, I think that's going to be huge. And if you do that, I think you get a W. But, again, dangerous, dangerous game because of the – highs and the lows, the roller coaster that Western Carolina can ride with tons of turnovers, no conscience, come back out, two plays, 90 yards, touchdown. Like it, Psychologically, this is a very weird game. So the Bucs are going to have to be in the right headspace. And hey, they're a competent group, they're 8-1. It seems like it would be tough to not be in the right headspace after this. It would be tough to imagine that. You'd have to think if they get out to a hot start, though. I think the odd thing last week was the fact that Western one time of possession, but I will say this. There was a couple of turnovers, and there was a turnover, one-play touchdown. There was a turnover, I think it was two plays, touchdown for Furman. But Western had one possession in the first quarter. It was similar to what Furman, I think, in ETSU did, where Furman kind of dominated the first quarter like they did against ETSU, and then never really had possession either because of quick scores. I mean, even Furman scored against ETSU in the – third quarter was, you know, like five plays. Uh, they ran a couple long passes. and So, it, I'll be interested to see time of possession because if Western's able to hold the ball a lot, that's probably a bad thing for ETSU. And I think ETSU is aware of, like, hey, we're going to get plays on the ground. We need to continue to get plays on the ground, and we need to keep the clock and just churn it out. And I really feel like ETSU is going to turn around and hand it off because Western is not going to stack the box early. But if they get gutted, they may try to stack the box, and then maybe you get a chance to take some shots down the field with Will Huzzy. So 
All right, that's our breakdown. ETSU, Western Carolina, 2 o'clock opening kick. It will be 12.30 pregame show here on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Southern Conference breakdown after this timeout. To hear a word from Van Wagner on the Buccaneer Sports Network, brought to you by City. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it can open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you play. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Talk Sanford, Florida, though last time they played in Florida, Jay Sandoz led Florida State with five minutes left. Just saying. Leading in the fourth quarter. That's right. The Bulldogs will do it again and then lose. Okay. That's what they do. That's what they do. They'll lead in the fourth quarter and then they'll turn in the second. find a way to lose like by four touchdowns after being up by two touchdowns entering the quarter. Um, Already talked about the Bucs. One of the five and one teams in the Southern Conference in segment one. The other two play each other this week. Chattanooga. And Mercer, and if this game were in Chattanooga, I would honestly think this is going to be a blowout. Now, just because it's in Macon doesn't mean it can't be. The only team in the top four Mercer has played so far is BMI, and they got really dismantled 45-7 to at home due to some early mistakes that cost them. Game was off the rails from the start. They never recovered. Chattanooga, we believe, is better than BMI, despite the one-league loss for the Mox coming to BMI in overtime earlier this year couple of tremendous running games. Fred Davis, the star for the Bears, the balanced running attack of the Mox with Tyrell Price, Alim Ford, and Geno Appleberry, along with others. A couple of solid defenses since giving up 45 to VMI. Mercer has allowed just 21 combined, though their opponents have been Wofford in the Citadel. Chattanooga leads the SoCon in almost every defensive category. Scoring defense, total defense, rushing defense, interceptions, sacks, third down defense, turnovers, forced their second in red zone defense to ETSU, and their second in the league in passing defense and pass efficiency defense. Mercer has had the extra week coming off a bye. Do you think that is a big deal, as it seemed to be for ETSU against VMI last week? Yeah, it'd be interesting, because Mercer played one last game this year. Just They played a full sort of fall schedule, played a few games in the fall, then they played the spring schedule. And I think strategically somebody pulled out of one of their games instead of scheduling another game, I think they did. Probably the right decision of, you know what, our guys played a lot, let's just sit and wait. So certainly getting an extra week to game plan when you have two good teams. And for Mercer, I don't think it's necessarily the defensive game planning. To me, it's offensive game planning. What are they going to do with the front three of Chattanooga, which I think is the best in the Southern Conference and got to be top three or four FCS. I I haven't seen every single team, so I I leave myself a little leeway there, but it's got to be just those front three guys. I mean, Maxwell just got uh, – I saw where he was announcing one of the watch lists for best defense alignment in the country. So, he's obviously getting um, a lot of that. So, can they run the ball? Can they do the smoke and mirrors? Can they get it going? Can they muck it up? Can Mercer do that and then not give up the big play? And that's sort of the problem for them this year defensively is they've given up a lot of big plays. And we know the one thing that Chattanooga will just, you know, 
run at you, run at you, run at you, and eventually after a few shifts you'll you know lose some sort of gap integrity and then they bust them up. And they certainly have three backs that can take it to the house if they push, when you throw in uh, Geno Appleberry in there as well. I think turnovers will be huge if Mercer can hang on to the football and get Cole Copeland or Chat to turn it over. They've got a shot. This is a, a game. This is truly one of the more interesting chess matches because both offenses like to do a little bit of smoke and mirror for Chattanooga. Excuse me. It's on the pre-snap. Smoke and mirror. You know, let's get over here. Let's shift here. Let's move this guy here. Let's do whatever. And then let's hand off and see if you've replaced wherever the motion was. For Mercer, they'll do a little bit pre-snap motion, but once the ball snap, then they're going to, you know, hand-eye coordination with all the fakes to different backs and people jetting the motion and all the other stuff. So eye discipline for both defenses will be huge. Mercer has had some success against Chattanooga. They're four and three versus Chat. Uh, so you know, obviously seven games isn't a ton as opposed to some of the other stats I've given you this year. But they have been able to beat Chattanooga. And so I feel like this is a game that Mercer has a great shot at home as long as they don't turn the football over. So I started to go into this at the end of the broadcast on ESPN Plus against VMI, and then, of course, Quay busts a big run, and I just have to you know, walk it back, and then the game's over, and didn't get a chance to get to all of it. But in terms of scenarios, to me, and tell me if you see this differently, the only team that does not control their own destiny with a 5-1 record is ETSU, currently with how things sit. Chattanooga wins out. They have the tie break over the Bucks, even if the Bucks win the last two, because they beat ETSU 21-16 when the two teams played. Mercer, if they went out, well, they'll have victories over Chattanooga and ETSU because those are their last two games. They would be 7-1. and one. Neither of those teams would have one loss at that point. They would be the only one-loss team in the league. They would have the Southern Conference Championship and automatic berth to the FCS playoffs. For ETSU, if they went out, Depending on what happens, sure, they can be the league champion, but they would need Mercer to win this week over Chattanooga because, again, the tiebreak does not favor ETSU against Chattanooga. ETSU and Mercer would play as much of a de facto SOCON championship game as there ever would be if Mercer beats Chat. Right. Because it's simple math. Two one-loss teams meet, one, one loss team will be standing. Any other scenario, then if chat wins, then you're praying on the Citadel to do something. This goes back to a conversation. Do you want more teams in the playoffs? And if you want the max team in the playoffs, then for the league, I'm not saying this is what ETSU and ETSU fans are pulling for, but as a league, you're probably pulling for Chattanooga to win out you're pulling for ETSU to win out, and you're pulling for VMI to win out. Hmm. And that would give you three teams in the playoffs. And more than likely, you would get a home game with Chattanooga. You have a shot at a seed for ETSU, even if they're not conference champions. This happens all the time. There have been number one seeds that did not win their conference championship. So – I know I've been asked that a lot. Can you be a seed if you've – there are like third-place teams in Missouri Valley getting – so it's 
conference championship is nice, and you would still share a conference championship. You just would lose the tiebreaker for the automatic bid. It's not like you don't get to hang a banner and say you're Southern Conference champs. You still get to do that. It still happens in basketball and every other sport. But just getting the auto bid, that would go to Chattanooga. And then VMI, if they want out, has a pretty strong case that they would get in. So you'd have three teams in the playoffs. I don't think four, but I did read – uh, Brian McLaughlin gave a four-team there scenario. There is, because, uh, and I'll give it to you right here. Say that Mercer beats Chat this week, Chat wins the last week of the season. Then ETSU loses to Western but beats Mercer, and VMI wins out. All four teams are 6-2. and two. What happens then? Well, for Mercer, oh, you're talking about playoffs, you're talking about to win the championship. Well, it would be a four-way tie for the championship. I there's going to be an auto, but I, I'm wondering what you think would happen in terms of four teams there. Do all four get in? Well, here's the problem for Mercer. They only have six wins total because they play ten games, right? Right. Or because point doesn't count. Right, and one of them is not So point. there have been very few six-win FCS win teams that have gotten in, which is why they're set. Why them not having the other game could come back to haunt them. They would have quote unquote seven overall wins, but as you said, point they're only not they, conference they, wins. The committee throws yeah, they throw that out. They also throw out the Oklahoma loss, so they would have a true whatever their conference record is right. would be their true record. So that's the problem is that Mercer if ETSU beats West Carolina, let, let's just look at it this way. If Chattanooga wins one of their next two, they're in the playoffs. If ETSU wins one of their next two, they're in the playoffs. If VMI can win the next two, they're in the playoffs. Mercer would be the wild card because they would probably have to win. So you would actually need ETSU for the Southern Conference. You would need ETSU to beat Western, lose to Mercer, as you said. Mercer's got to win two to get to six, right? Is that No, they're five and one right now. So the best scenario, I think, to get four in would be Mercer would have to win both games. ETSU and Chat would have and to the win. Ones the ones don't they don't lose, play, yeah. Mercer. Right. And then VMI went out, and that would be your best shot for four to get in. Which ETS, which Southern Conference gotten was it 2016? I think they had four in last last time they had four in. So it's not unheard of for the Southern Conference. Plus, there's some other teams that are beating each other up. Now, ETSU wins two games. They're if they're not in a top eight slot right this second, I can't imagine they're any further than let's say tenth, ninth or tenth. And I'm looking at the top 25, and let me tell you, they've already. Some of the top 25 there, and I read Craig Haley's bracketology where he had Sacramento State, who's ranked 18th with two losses to two unranked teams. There's no way they're getting this in. I don't know, and I like Craig, but I don't, I don't know what he, he's doing with that math. Brian McLaughlin has ETSU first team out, and with the caveat of, hey, you know, UC Davis and Eastern Washington are going to play here. First team out of the if, seed. Yes, out of the seed. If Eastern Washington were to lose, they got three losses. Are you going to keep a three-loss team over – a team that beat an FBS school and held them to three. And I'll, so I think there are some things that if ETSU, honestly, the game for ETSU, I don't think is so much pulling for Mercer to beat Chat and all that. I think the thing is ETSU, if you're a Buck fan and you want to buy and you want a chance to be a top eight seed and play a home game on December 4th, you're only concerned about winning the next two. Because the Chattanooga winning the next two does nothing for your seed. I mean, honestly, it would make you look a little better because your one loss was to Chattanooga. It is your arch rival. It was a road game, all the things that went into that. And you look at VMI, if they were to win out. I think it's threes guaranteed. If VMI can win the next two, and now VMI's got Western next week, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. But if VMI can win two, 
if Chad at least goes one and two or two and zero, oh, they're in. And I think if ETSU goes one and two, two and zero, oh, they're in. I think for Mercer to get in, I think they got to win both. I think they would have to win both to get to that seven wins that would almost assure them a shot. Seven FCS wins generally, you know, unless there's just a ton of seven-win teams that generally get you in at that point. So, well, and it, well, and it would be the automatic if that played out as well. So Mercer actually would be in his automatic. Then the question would be VMI. What would they do with them? Because I think Chat and ETSU would be in, even though VMI maybe has one more win than Chattanooga. Right, because if Mercer wins out and then ETSU and Chattanooga win the games they don't play against Mercer, that's two losses for them. Mercer is seven and one. VMI wins two. They're also at that two loss mark, six and two, with ETSU and Chattanooga. Let me ask you this, then we can move on because obviously there's a lot of football left to be played, and we can only go through so many scenarios without this being a you know mile long podcast. What makes you so sure about VMI winning their last two and being in? Is it the simple fact that they would have eight wins? They have the win against Chattanooga. It is a strong resume. I'm asking just purely out of curiosity from someone that has looked at this stuff longer than myself. Well, and and they got a – who was it, Cornell? Beat Cornell, beat right, Davidson. Right, beat Cornell, beat Davidson. So Davidson still counts as an FCS win too. So I think if they get to eight FCS wins, they're in. I, I would – don't believe there's a if they win two and you throw out the Kent State game right they throw out the Kent State game so and and if their two losses are only to ETSU and Chattanooga you know and if ETSU and Chattanooga unless both of them lose both games I mean that would change VMI scenario slightly well they beat Chattanooga they lost to the Citadel oh that's true oh the Citadel that's right military classic of the south right throw it out robbery game throw it out throw it out but I think if VMI wins the next two they got eight wins I don't know how you couldn't put them in Especially Davidson, who would win the Pioneer League and be in in the tournament as of right now, unless Davidson crashes and burns. So I think VMI wins two, they're in. ETSU and Chat wins one of the next two, they're in. I think Mercer has to win two to be in. That's it's playoff talk for me. The first of those two for VMI is at Furman. I think preseason, many picture this as having perhaps league title implications. Instead, where we sit, it actually means little in that sense, at least where we currently are. But there is a lot to play for on both sides. The last time Furman didn't win more than two conference games was 2015. They're on a three-game losing streak. They have to find a way to end the struggles, so this isn't an historically bad year. And also, just to try to build some momentum to next year. For VMI, obviously, as we just talked about, the lost TTSU hurt, but with wins over Chattanooga and Mercer, if they can win their next two, have only two FCS losses, both in the league and have wins over Chat and Mercer, seems like there would be a direct path to an FCS playoff berth. If not, dare I say that much talked about, probably seldom seen in the history of the league, four-way split for the league title. This strikes me as a bad matchup for VMI. Of course, offensively firm and struggling, but the Paladins also have a strong defense in both facets, and ETSU just gave them a blueprint in that first half for how to stop VMI. Could the Furman offense be confident after tying their best offensive day of the year and then their defense return to the form that held ETSU and Chattanooga to just 30 combined points, or you think that because VMI likes to throw the ball like Western did last weekend to the tune of 386 yards through the air, that Furman struggle will continue. Uh, hey, go I, either way for me. Honestly. I just think it's a bad matchup for VMI. It, it, yeah, and, and you know, Furman defensively, but, man, they just gave up a ton to they did. Western Carolina. I, I'm going to say because 
Furman is struggling to score, that VMI is going to get enough points on the board um, to win that one. Last year, I don't know if you remember, but last year, so it's 14-13, VMI won at home, and Furman had a couple of fourth downs. They went for didn't get, missed a field goal. Something else crazy happened in that game in the spring. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a dogfight. And I, I just think VMI is going to be able to get a little more on the board. And I'm thinking VMI is going to be 24-27, something like that. And Furman offensively is still going to start. I don't know. I'm going to say uh, VMI takes a close one on the road, 27-24. I think it's going to be close. I, I'm not sure that Furman will win. But I do think this is going to be one of those weird ones where this is not a this is a certain matchup that you as much as we talk about VMI winning those two I can see VMI going zero and two I can see VMI losing at Furman with it just like last week I thought you know Furman West was a coin flip I think this is one of the more coin flip games and then I think Western and goodness if Western beats ETSU then my I, I mean <laughs> I don't I, I think they they do beat VMI I don't even think it's going to yeah going to be a game. But I think BMI, Furman, again, it's one of those like last week I said with Western. I could see it. I would be sh- more shocked if somebody won by 17. I, I think it's a 7, 10-point max game and somewhere between 3 and 10 points and the key to sneak out a, a win on the road. Wofford in the Citadel, I know you either want to break this down meticulously or not at all. What do you prefer? I, I prefer that the game be called due to lack of interest on my <laughs> part and that the losing coaches just go ahead and, and just not, not come in the office on Monday. That's what I think should happen. I don't think both coaches are going to be there in about two Mondays from now. Is it Bloody Monday or Bloody Tuesday? It's Bloody Tuesday in the NFL. I think it's Bloody Monday on no, um, it's, college football. It's Monday right? in the NFL. Is it Bloody Monday? I thought they called it Black Monday. Is it Bloody Monday? I think I've changed the name. But I think it's Monday. I don't think they've changed the day. Okay. I don't know what it is in the SoCon. Uh, I, I, I mean, it could With be all Sunday. The coaching changes in college football seemingly throughout the year. I don't think there's any one day in college That's football. That's true. That's true. There's a, at, at the end of the NFL season, there's always the, the, day, the day after. So if the last day is Sunday, then Monday, because there's no Monday night Twitter game. Twitter has turned week. it into yeah. Sunday, like mid-evening, because, you know, news starts to break. Oh, yeah. hey, coaches are out yeah. by 8 o'clock Sunday. I think this I is mean, intriguing because someone – has to win. I'm not sure who is more down in the dumps right now. I honestly think Citadel is probably going to get the W. I think the difference will be that they still do something really, really well, and Wofford really doesn't. Citadel leads the league in rushing offense. Again, it would be hard running that offense not to. I mean, I'm the fourth quarterback, and I read some quotes where the other guys, some some of the quarterbacks are out with injuries. Wyrick, Derrick. So, so it wasn't Morrison. so much just looking for something so much as he's the only guy left. Well, so if there is something to say to Wofford, if you are, and we lived this in 2019, when you're on your fourth guy, just, although ETSU still seem like they have a semblance of an offense in 2019 where Wofford does not. Does not One of so. seven for nine yards for Kyle Pinnock last week. Wofford's fifth in the league in rushing offense. Citadel leads it. I think that the best characteristic is going to win the game, and that would be the Citadel. Although it seems like you want to just throw the game out and have like a steel cage match between the two head coaches to see who gets it done. I do. Which would be entertaining, right at midfield? 
Yeah, I, Thompson's too fiery. I think he'd take Conklin. I mean, Thompson, I've seen him. I mean, you've seen him on the sideline. You've seen his post-game interviews. Yes. Seems like a fiery guy. I, and also, if Wofford loses this, I don't know when the last time they went winless for an entire year in league play. I don't think it ever would have happened because they're on their longest losing streak in SOCON play as of, like, the eight-game mark. And I know you go back to SOCON history and maybe there were less games played, I suppose, in a year. But since you went to an eight-game schedule? In the modern era, it would have to be their first, right? I, mean, I haven't looked, but yes, that's all right. And they are done after this week, right? Because they play North Carolina. Uh, the 20th, they're they're they're, they're, they're done in league play, and they're uh, done, and they're done. Because I can't imagine Coach Downs' kid uh, not going for a thousand yards against them. I'm sorry. Massive weekend, massive so. weekend in the SoCon, baby. All right, let's talk basketball Southern Conference preview right after this time out. Here, word sent of sidekick on the back of the air, Sports Network. For over seventy-five years, Bright Ridge has powered our community. Providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. has tipped off for many, not for ETSU yet. They will play tomorrow, Friday. We record this on Thursday. Friday, Appalachian State, 6.30 opening tap, 6 o'clock pregame show. And then the men would have tipped off Southern Conference already some big wins. Yeah, you want to talk about it? I mean, the Citadel against Pittsburgh by double digits. I mean, Mercer put a scare into a ranked Arkansas team. Chattanooga wins at uh, LMU, right? Mm-hmm. Lelo Marymount. And then wasn't it uh, Western in overtime? Against Bowling Green, Green yeah. yeah. So, so what do you know? SoCon again, basketball great. Who knew? Yeah, shocking, right? Top ten league in the land. We know it. Doesn't seem like many around the country do, but they are certainly on notice now. Where are you on my text to Steve Forbes that he is now currently in ACC standings a half game behind Duggarbacher? <laughs> well, I hope he was in a good mood the night you read that text. I, I cannot give you his response. <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk more about ETSU in depth, obviously, as the weeks go along, every single show. And Ad nauseum, even. Yes, and we've got Buck Basketball, Budget Beater Blowout coming up next segment, which will round out our count up to the season. We're not going to break down Appalachian State a whole lot or the Tennessee game a whole lot, um, but we will talk ETSU in this segment and the other nine teams as well. And this is going to be a long one, so... Get your cup of coffee, hit pause right now if you need to, come back, and you may need more coffee, much like Jason Hannes is looking at the bottom of his mug right now to try to be able to I was to hoping you are talking to me instead of somebody else. Well, I think that you could all use coffee. Uh, I had some the last two days, and, and I'm still wired, quite honestly, because I have it like ten times a year. Uh, Chattanooga, I'm going once again in order, I know you're going to hate me, of teams that I voted for in the Southern Conference preseason poll, and I did vote Chattanooga number one. Last year, struggle with scoring, second to last in the league in points per game, and third to last in field goal percentage. Also, were last in the league in rebounding margin and block shots. To remedy the inside issues, they decide to get Silvio De Sosa. Maybe one of the most controversial transfers to ever come into the Southern Conference. Am I? I mean, am I overstating it there? 
You've been around the SoCon a lot longer than I have. I, I would have to think on that, but yes, he's certainly one of the, the. I mean, if you think about it, there's very few college basketball fights, and let alone brawls, like all out brawls. Yes, and ETSU had one of those a few years ago with Gilon Gwynn because he was the one that threw the first punch in the Cincinnati Xavier matchup. <clears throat> so, not throwing stones at Chattanooga, ETSU's taking one, but. Certainly, DeSosa with the chair in the stands where they had to pull the stool or chair, whatever it was, is just the visual of that. Yes. There's not many of those. And, of course, people forget David Sloan was in the – not in the actual fight, but he was actually on Kansas State team when that happened. So, uh, But he also beat some charges on apparently well, knocking a guy's eye out or something crazy. Yeah, so. and it's not just that brawl that people saw at Kansas. Also was ineligible for impermissible benefits before that, uh, opted out of the 2020-21 season after that. All the talk around him, he's only played 38 collegiate games with one college start. So while he is extremely controversial, I also am not sure that he's ever really lived up to the hype. We haven't seen what he can truly be, um, but he obviously comes with a lot of intrigue. Outside of him, don't overlook Avery Diggs, 6'11", 250 pounds, transfer from UCF, his fourth school, and never has produced exceptionally at D1, but again, a big body to go along with DeSosa. Players gone from last year's team, Alex Tostado and Mark Tikanenko, Trey Dumas, Prosper Obedi-Doobie, uh, and Stefan That's your boy. Obedi-Doobie. Oh, I, I don't know where he landed, but I will be paying attention to that team this year. Tikanenko, Tostado, Dumas, and Obedi-Doobie played a combined 15 games during the spring. Kenich, the only real loss of note, third on the team in scoring, team leader in blocks. Malachi Smith, David G. Baptiste, Darius Banks, those being the top three, or I should say three of the top four scorers, all back. Role players and part-time starters, Casey Hankton, Jamal Walker. Your guy, A.J. Caldwell, also back. Heck of a guy. Heck of a guy, A.J. Caldwell. This is a scary team to me. I voted them number one for a variety of reasons, but you have a lot returning. You have some potentially impact transfers with size inside that are in. Uh, this is my team to beat the SoCon. I don't ever want to give Chattanooga credit where credit is due, right? I mean, I think that's Correct. fair. Um but it would be silly, I think, not to rank them first. Every, Malachi Smith was ridiculous. David Jean Baptiste left, came back, was going to transfer there. How are they going to mesh? They mesh fine. I mean, they've got two or three walking double-doubles just on their roster to begin with. A lot of talent. Honestly, AJ Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. <laughs> Found it. Sorry, I had to do that. And I don't know. He's a double double machine, but he certainly hit, hit a big shot in Freedom Hall. Uh, and so you hit a big shot in Freedom Hall. One, you're on my list, too. Um, certainly put you in some lore. But I think Chattanooga, I don't think we have to break them down as much as other teams. They are on paper, already got a big win on the road at Lalo Marymount. I think clearly the number one team going into the race. I hope that things work out the way that I have them in the preseason poll. Now, I don't hope Chattanooga finishes first, but I hope the top two are the same because this would be a lot of fun. I have ETSU number two. Last year won six of their first seven league games. Of course, crashed and burned in the second half of the league year, losing six of their last eight thanks to a ton of close losses, and let's just call it a wide variety of other things, Jay Sandoz. Of course, all the headlines on this team were that there was a mass exodus. In sheer quantity, that may be true. Whole coaching staff gone, 11 of the 17 off that team in terms of players, but much like Chattanooga, three of the team's top four scorers are back, both Brewers, David Sloan, and it's five of the top seven if you skip down to Bonnie Patterson and Silas Adeke. Big loss, of course, Jamari Monsanto. Hear from Kenny Hawkins during bold predictions about how blah, 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 something kind of fresh with the air transferring. Thanks, Kenny. He's gone, went to Wake. 
I think some, though, believe that Jordan King, who the Bucks brought in maybe a better shooter than Monsanto, was last year. The two were shooting virtually the same percentage from three in their careers. Uh, the bigger loss to me is not his offense, it's his rebounding. Led the team in rebounding, and when the Bucks were really rolling, had double-digit rebounds in four of six games, along with the six returners, Charlie Weber, the only that we haven't mentioned, Mohab Yasser, King, Cordell Charles, and Jaden Seymour, the Wichita State transfer, sounds like they're in line for the four other spots in what Desmond Oliver said would be a 10-man rotation at its largest and in the um, exhibition. I think we kind of saw that unfold a little bit. Well, I even said postgame is going to redshirt four guys. So there's only going to be 10 guys um, that are going to be in uniform, in theory. Now, he may dress one or two out in case of absurd injuries, three or four injuries, or something happens and you need it somebody, but they're only going to play ten guys. They're going to redshirt four freshmen. They're going to play two freshmen. And I think this this is intriguing. Because they have so much back, I think Coach is a little more aware than the media where the coaches had ETSU third. They had um, ETSU fifth in the media because I think just the turmoil of the term. So, right. <laughs> I mean. so I think that's a situation where I think I voted ETSU third, okay. if, if I'm not mistaken, where I put them. So I think you know, top three is where they should be just because of the names you mentioned. I think Monsanto's rebound, and I agree. The position he plays and his rebounding, I think, will be lost. I think some extra scoring punch where ETSU still struggled sometimes from beyond the arc without having a Pat Good that could knock down shots. I think that's maybe where Jordan King is going to be able. I think there's a couple other guys that certainly have worked on their game. But ETSU is going to try to play more up tempo. They're going to try to press more. They are long and athletic. We'll see how long it takes them to gel. Obviously, two good contests kind of gauge with Friday night's game against App State. Again, we're not going to break that down, but that and then Tennessee where you're playing against some pros. We'll see how the team has sort of gelled. And then the injury, you know, didn't see Ty Brewer in exhibition games. We'll see if we'll see him in both those contests as well. And David David Sloan, Sloan, I did watch practice yesterday. He did practice and go – and Ty Brewer actually did practice and go, so I'm assuming it will be a full 10-man roster. If ETSU comes out of this 48-hour stretch 1-1, one and one, are you happy, unhappy, exactly where you thought you'd be? Probably exactly where I thought they would be. They come out 0-2? Is that a disaster? Just, it just depends. Uh, you know, I think you can't over – I mean, last year when you saw the Abilene Christian game, I think people were – I was trying to calm people down because it was like, oh, my goodness, we're not going to win a game all year. And I'm like, well – They had 90% of their scoring. Back. Right. I mean, <laughs> so it's all relative. You know, if ETSU is in a – you know, now App State is not returning back to Abilene Christian, so they lost by 40, yes, there might be a panic button. But if there's a – how the game plays out, you know, a certain way, would I be encouraged if they were still 0-2? Could be. Could I be discouraged at 0-2? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then – you know, the scenario of 2-0 and o is always out there, just like, you know, ETSU football. You think, you know, ETSU is going to beat Vandy. Now, the difference is Tennessee has pros. Vandy football, I'm not sure, does. But Tennessee basketball certainly does, so that makes it a little tougher uh, to go there. But I think if you were to write down at the beginning of the year and go wins, loss, wins, losses, I think most people, although App State's more of a toss-up game, I think they would put, you know, ETSU win over App because that's generally what happens. ETSU beats App basketball. They generally lost to App football. You just kind of mark it up that way. I saw an Appalachian State fan on some status that somebody posted where I think it was a screenshot of the last time ETSU beat App State, or it was like a 78-69 game. I can't remember exactly when that was, but an Appalachian State fan responded, that was your Super Bowl that year. 
I think it was the 2019-20 season where ETSU went 30 games. Yeah, was going to the NCAA tournament uh, in the postseason, the SoCon, essentially just ran everybody out of the gym. Like, I, the ignorance is uh, just incredible. Or they're just button pressers up there in Boone. I'm not quite sure. I have Furman third. Pretty typical Furman team, it looks like to me. They were extremely uh, healthy last year and were able to play their starting lineup 80% of every game. Didn't have a ton of depth, were extremely efficient scoring, finished in the top three in the league, and were bounced early in the postseason. That sounds like Furman last year. And if we look at Furman this year after finishing third last year, uh, I think it could be more of the same. Uh, the Paladins, plus the next team we're going to talk about, I think are in very similar situations. That's going to be Wofford, spoiler alert. Uh, finished... Uh, Last year, top three, both of them. Um, when it comes to this Furman team this year, we're obviously used to seeing them have some top-end talent, but it's hard to tell if they will have that this year and who it may be. Furman in that boat because Noah Gurley transferred to Alabama. Claymont's graduated. He knew that was coming, but when Gurley left, I think some eyebrows were raised, maybe some nerves kind of tightened a bit for Paladin fans. So rather than have the one-two punch that – they have really had, ever since Bob Ritchie took over, for Nico Medved, it was Devin Sibley and Matt Rafferty. Then it was Rafferty, Mounts, and Jordan Lyons, a three-headed monster. Then it was Rafferty, Mounts, and Gurley. And then last year, Bothwell, Gurley, and Mounts. Now they only return Bothwell from their top three scorers because of that transfer of Gurley. Can Alex Hunter be that, or would it take him too far from what he does best, which is playing the true point as he does so well? Is Jalen Slauson's time now? Could it be Garrett Heen or Jalen Pugh or... Their lone transfer, grad student Conley Garrison, who was a prized non-D1 transfer, I'm interested to see because, as of now, I do think there is cause for concern. I personally think that Furman could slide from this three spot if they don't find that second score. Yeah, I think, to me, Heen would be a guy that, because he reminds you a lot of Rafferty. And maybe it's just because they look a little bit similar, the way they're built, and but I think the style of game that they play... Slauson was a little bit confusing because he would have, what, those 20-point games and then, you know, go over. But he didn't get shots every game. So I think Slauson and Heen, you throw in Bothwell, Hunter, I don't know who the fourth guy could be, um, or fifth guy, I guess. It could I be more by committee this right. year. Right, and, and, and that's the one thing, right? That has been the – I have been critical of them because they'll play a starting five – and give them everything and not have much of a bench and not have anything to work on. And last year they started to, and maybe some of it was COVID, maybe some of it was other things, they were starting to get ready. The biggest concern for me besides the scoring, and that is a big concern, is when Alex Hunter's off the floor, they struggle at a point guard. And granted, I think we, if you've listened to any podcast, you know I'm a huge fan of Alex Hunter. But they really struggled, honestly, when he wasn't on the floor. And so I think that's going to be a bigger issue this year if they haven't developed. Now, maybe that's why they got Conley Garrison. I've not seen Garrison play yet. I'm not sure exactly his role. But I think they're so dependent on a point guard or a point forward like Rafferty to run the offense through. Either Heen or Hunter's got to be able to do that. But when they're out, who's the guy to step up? But I think scoring, number one, I think who's going to handle the ball after Alex Hunter will be number two for me and why Furman has questions. Wofford 4 filled it up from 3 per usual last year. Maybe lacked some quality size inside with the departure of Chavez Goodwin to USC. But nothing glaring that they did terribly. They survived and one year in particular thrived incredibly 
with the trio of Fletcher, McGee, Nathan Hoover, and Storm Murphy. Well, the final of those three is gone. Bit of a new era now for the Terriers. The big loss from last year's team, definitely Murphy. Trey Hollowell, not a small one either. Nick Pringle and Zion Richardson, the third and fourth of the four to depart, non-factored last year. But Murphy, who's at Virginia Tech now, Hollowell, who went to Moorhead State with the team's top two scores, and without any of that trio of Murphy, Hoover, and McGee for the first time in recent memory, there is a void. I think there's some that imagine maybe Max Klesmet will fill it. High-efficiency scorer, can shoot the lights out. If you don't have it as him, maybe Morgan Safford. It's probably not Messiah Jones unless they completely change their offense since he isn't a shooter. Quality player, no doubt, but probably not a number one in a system like Wofford. Sam Godwin and Ryan Larson seem to just be kind of role players to me. B.J. Mack, I love, came in from South Florida. To me, he was a little disappointing last year because of some inconsistency. Uh, did make the most of his opportunities for the most part, but wasn't really a central figure for them last year. Could this be the chance for this super skilled big to really have the rubber hit the road this year? They didn't add any transfers, even with the one-time transfer rule. As I said with Furman, I think there's cause for concern, but maybe even more so in this case, which is why I have Furman ahead of Wofford. First thing I'd be concerned about was Messiah Jones played one minute versus Bob Jones. So I don't know if there's an injury or uh, he did something wrong off the top and he said, son, you can sit for the rest of the game. But just looking at the ex- – or not the exhibition, their first game of the year, Klinsman 23, Ryan Larson 19. So Larson's going to get more shots. Klinsman I th- would be my first guess would be the guy. And then something – I don't know why they don't do more, but Sam Godwin was 8 of 9 from the floor. Wow. And so we'll have to see how everybody else goes. But – you look at Bigelow back. Now, he missed last year, and he is a oversized four man. He's long and lanky, got wide range, can play some defense. Can he get his shot going coming off an injury? I like Sanford's top five or six. There's some question marks wow. on, like, some scoring I get. Obviously, Messiah Jones, and maybe just Messiah Jones against ETSU because he just kills the Bucks, but you added Masai Jones, Godwin, Mack, and then the guards of Klinsman, Lawson, and Bigelow. I think they got something there. The biggest issue I think they'll have to address is who's going to take that shot that Storm Murphy or Fletcher McGee or whoever in the Maybe past Hoover. has been able, Hoover has all been able to take. I think the last shot, but they return just enough that I think they should be in there amongst the. Lee upper echelon of the league, but I think they have a lot of question marks. You know, Alex Hunter had 22 in exhibition game. You know, Clemson has 23 in exhibition game, but how do those play out? You know, not Bob Jones, non-division one. You get to one, will they go back into somewhat of a different role? If Larson throws 19 on the board tonight, now that's a game changer because that's something we've not seen from him. He's a defensive guy. He's the uh, fake take charge guy. He's, you know, the glue energy type. But if he throws points on the board, To be man, fair, he would be probably a tremendous Division two player. So to see him excel against a Bob Jones, I think, does make sense. Look at that hot take coming. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying he's not a fine Division one player. He is. Yeah. But he, I don't think he's going to be doing 8 of 9 for 19 points. Because yeah, I don't see that either. Uh, again, I mean, the skill set translates more to, uh, I think, a Division two non-D1 level. Well, and, and the other thing I would say in that exhibition game, uh, Morgan Swafford didn't play at all. So, again, seeing what they're – and exhibition – I mean, Tyburn didn't play in his exhibition. So, there's a lot to look – they got Clemson coming up next, and then they go Nandi one Erskine, then Hampton, once we get into a little bit further down the road. But I, I think Wofford returns enough. I think that's the issue is there's so many 
teams that had some major turnover. You already talked about ETSU. Some players stayed, but staff went. And then as you get down the list, there's some other turnover that I think warrants them going down and Wofford staying where they are. This may be my most unpopular pick of the preseason poll. I have Mercer 5, and they certainly showed on night one of the season that they could be more than that. I know there's a lot of others that voted them higher. Keep in mind, I think I voted them like second or third last year. I was huge on Mercer, and it was a team that was just disappointing during the league season, the league regular season at the very least. Uh, I had them contending for a regular season title. I wasn't the only one on this show or in this office that did. And it was some measure of retribution, certainly, when they went on to the postseason final and made it tight against UNCG as a seven seed after going 8-9 and in the regular season. This year, I'm just not as optimistic as I was last year about the team because a ton is out the door. Leon Ayers III was one of my favorite players in the league that doesn't wear blue and gold. He transferred to Duquesne. Jeff Gary, his uncle driving him out or didn't allow him back or him leaving on his own accord, I'm not sure what may have gone on, but he's gone. Drew Thomas, Mitch Prendergast, Patrick Uri, Ross Cummings. Your second favorite player in the league, outside of perhaps A.J. Caldwell or perhaps outside of Alex Hunter, uh, somewhere in there. And maybe the second oldest man to play a college sport outside of Jared Fultz. It certainly seemed like he had been around forever. My favorite, Magic Bender, who they actually took off the roster before the end of last year, which would explain why when I think I said that Magic Bender was the key to ETSU winning against Mercer when that game was here in February and he didn't play, I all of a sudden did not look so brilliant. Um, Cummings and Ayers were two of the team's top three scorers two of their three best shooters as well. I think Cummings, you would say, was kind of the glue to that team, even though he wasn't their best player. Their best player is back. And maybe my favorite player in the league outside of, yes, perhaps, Ladarius Brewer, Neftali Alvarez, will run the point again for them. And I think as long as they have him, they'll be okay. Felipe Hase is back. He's multi-talented, their leading rebounder and best returning shooter. I think the most intriguing addition on his unofficially fourth school in 18 months, from Tennessee to ETSU for a brief second, even though he never suited up, to Wake Forest, now to Mercer. Jalen Johnson, their loan transfer in, they would be greatly helped if he can finally live up to what many have seen in him, certainly when bringing him to their programs, but have gotten really none of the results from. Other role players back, James Glisson, Kamar Robertson, and your favorite name to say that you don't say very often because he isn't out there that often, Victor Bafuto. I love Bafudo. You love Bafudo. I do. He's I back, do. too. But I do like Hase. I do like Alvarez. Jalen Johnson, again, if he can just come in and be what people have thought over his collegiate career, I think that will be big. But I just don't see how that postseason run is going to translate over to a new year of consistent success. Well, you know, James Glisson, the third, as they like to have the thirds on that team, I thought came on late last year. Philip Hase kind of came and went. I, I thought they didn't do a good job of kind of maximize games that he was playing well, or maybe he just disappeared. It was on him, not not everyone else. Alvarez is just fun to watch, to be honest. I, I think tremendous. He he's great, and when he's on the floor. They are a better team. I know they snuck out a win last year against somebody that we didn't think they would be competitive with without him. So certainly, Coach Gary has done a nice job of kind of turning things around, getting that up and going quickly. Jalen Johnson will be a question mark. I don't not know what to expect really from Sean Walker Jr. yet and see what we see from there. I think they're going to be a seven, eight-man rotation. That seems to be what Coach Gary would like to go with, and those guys know they're going to get shots. I think the three-point shooting will maybe dictate how they go. Um, they were 13 of 31 against Arkansas, kind of kept it close, but 
Alvarez was 0 for 6. So, I don't know how many 0 he's going to throw on the board. They were up at the half and yeah. lost by 13, I think. Uh, well, again, Arkansas is going to be a – Really good. Yes, they're going to be super – Mike Anderson uh, still there? No. No, is he That's, a, um, how, how long ago is that? It It's a Russellman or, or Musselman, right? Musselman? Oh, was, is he there? Was it Nevada, Russellman? right? Yeah, you know. That was only like a year ago that uh, Anderson left. Yeah, when it because Coach Forbes was up for that job, and then Musselman beat him out for it. Yeah, Musselman, twenty nineteen. Yeah, yeah. So, so Musselman ended up beating out. Coach, it, they were the two finalists, and then uh, Musselman was at Nevada. He ends up getting the job and turn, turn it over quickly. But I, I think Mercer, if they can shore up a few things again, I think the top five teams have a legitimate shot, Mercer being the, the fifth team. I think there's a question mark with UNCG, which I'm sure you're going to go over, and then I think there's the bottom four. Yeah, I, I think that, to me, I think it's top five and bottom five. And I can see where you'd have a question with UNCG and maybe include them in the top six and make it bottom four. I think it's top five, bottom five. Um, a very UNCG year by UNCG last year, who I voted six. Couldn't shoot it, but forced tons of turnovers. Also had one of the nation's best shot blockers and undoubtedly mid-major's most dangerous player uh, with Isaiah Miller. Of course, the shot blocker was Hayden Koval. They won the league regular season and postseason title. Miller now a member of my Minnesota Timberwolves, which is very fun. Good to see him get the chance in the league. Uh, the reason I see the fall from grace is because, of course, Miller's gone, head coach and best player. Um, but then A.J. McGinnis went to Cincinnati with Wes Miller. Angelo Allegri went to Eastern Washington. Uh, those are their top two shooters. Derrico Williams, uh, the shot-blocking force that we talked about, Koval, he's at Cincinnati now. Their first top 150 recruit in program history, Jared Hensley, went to Cincinnati. Ryan Tankowitz gone. Baz Leda, Michael Hewitt Jr., also gone. And, as we mentioned, maybe the biggest departure in terms of just what he built at UNCG, Wesley Miller at Cincinnati, and, again, took a lot of his team from last year to the Bearcats. Two so who's left? Two of their top three scorers do right, Keyshawn Langley and Caleb Hunter are back. Their leader rebounder, Mohamed Abdul-Salam, is back, too. They get in Dante Tracy, the NEC tournament MVP at Robert Morris last year. He's a true point, so that's a good get to run the show with Miller gone. They bring in 6'5", 245-pound Texas A&M Corpus Christi leading scorer Jalen White. And I do really like Mike Jones, their new head coach, coming in from Radford, where he won three consecutive titles, or I should say three conference titles in the last four seasons there, not three in a row, three of the last four. But I'm just finding it hard to believe in year one in this UNCG team because there are so many moving parts. A couple of good transfers, new head coach that I think is going to be good, but just so much turnover, um, difficult for me to find a way that this team is in. Certainly the top three, but maybe even the top five. What was your breakdown of Buckingham? Did not talk about DeMonte Buckingham. He had 28. The grad transfer from Cal State Bakerfield. He was the only guy in double figures in their first win against North Carolina A&T. And he was the one that, as I was looking at the roster, I glanced over and did not – I did not stop. Like, right. your eyes stop at certain players. Right. So, I'll be curious. Abdul Salam had 11 rebounds. He's about where he was. But, boy, Caleb Hunter, does this sound familiar? One of ten, mm. one of six from three. I think he can be a good player, but it, it is tough some nights. Uh, the, I'm trying to think. I didn't even, the Langleys didn't even start. So, the starting five was DeMonte Buckingham, Muhammad Abdul Salam, Dante, uh, Tracy, Caleb Hunter, and Kyrie Thompson. So we've seen a couple of those. Got three of the five. That is just game one, but still struggling. Six of twenty from three. That was the problem last year. Nine of seventeen from the free throw line. 
18 turnovers. This is They played through the turnovers last year because they were just so good defensively. Now, I like Mike Jones as a coach. I think I think he'll be okay. I don't know about this year. I think this year they lost so much that I think they're going to have a hard time figuring it out, at least early. Now, maybe come conference time they do, but there were three people in the media. I know this got Wofford fans really up in arms, but there were three people in the media voted UNCG Absurd. to win the league. Absurd. Like Absurd. So how bad did everybody else have them ranked that they end up being sixth if they got three first-place votes? Like, who in the media – just like who voted ETSU women's basketball number one in the media? We need to somehow full investigation. That's right. right. We need to tar and feather somebody. We need, same thing. I don't understand. Like I get like there is always laziness in some of these. Let's look at last year's record. You know, hey, I guess everybody's back. Let's go. Like right. you know, or at least you're in the ballpark. But that's the one that's just egregious. And I think UNCG will have a bigger learning curve than the other top five teams. And then I have UNCG. I could see them. Maybe cracking the top five. I certainly think they're going to be. If you had to pick a top five, they're not in my top five. Right. I think they would be sixth and then be the cream of the crop of the last four. I have BMI seventh. Dan Earl said last year his team was just flat out more talented than in years past. Jake Stevens added a bunch of muscle and really became a player for the Cadets. They scored it at 80 per game, their best offensive season under Earl by far. They also set highs in rebounding under Earl by about three, four rebounds per game, almost 39 per contest, and shooting from distance, 38%, up 2% from the last two years. The problem, once again, for the Keydets is that they saw their leading scorer transfer out for the third year in a row. It was Bubba Parham in 2018-19, Travis Evie 2019-20, and now Greg Parham from last season. Also gone, Miles Lewis, who was kind of their do-everything, hold-it-all-together guy. Tragen Fall also left. Devon Bond graduated. Caleb Moss is gone, too. Really, the big losses there, Parham and Lewis. Their other three starters were back, Sean Conway, uh, Stevens, and Camden Kerfman. So that's a plus for the Keydets, and I, I know you may be higher on them than I am, but until they find a way to win more road games, and everybody loves Dan Earl, and I love Dan Earl. He's a great guy, and he's done great things with BMI, but there are still hurdles there for them to compete to get into the top five and get a legitimate shot at a league title. And one of those is winning on the road in six seasons with Dan Earl there, 10-75 and 75 away from home. The issue they have is they don't, they don't get transfers. They don't do grad school. At least when they lost their leading score this year was because they had graduated, as opposed to leaving early. And Greg Parham, they just they just don't have grad school. And unless you want to stay enrolled as an undergrad and get a secondary undergrad degree, which does Helpful not seem appealing world. for uh, a lot of people, that they've got to bring in a bunch of freshmen. Occasionally, they'll get a transfer that will be coming up, as opposed to. You know, a Division One transfer, they have had very few, if any, Division One transfers, so they're going to be freshman-laden. They'll take some D2 guys that are willing to reclass and come up, but it's always going to be tough for them. It's just the way they're built as a university and everything. So he's going to go through spurts where every three, four years, I'm going to use the Conklin, every three or four years he will be able to get competitive. And then there will be a couple years where they're just – trying to dogfight you and see how many they can win. At least that's not his plan. At least it's not. It is, it is not his plan, but as as opposed to Coach Conklin, who, you know, took over a program and won like a 1,000 in a row to, you know, not winning a game all year. Dan Earl has done wonders at VMI, and you look traditionally and you take out the late 70s when they had an Elite Eight run and some things were different in college athletics then. 
I think he's about where he's going to be. And I'm a huge Dan Earl fan, but I don't know anybody that would have him more than seven. I and maybe even eighth. Uh, I mean, but I had him seventh. You had him seventh. Somebody may have him eighth. But, uh, I could see him sneaking above UNCG if somebody really did the research and just doesn't believe that with so many different things going on, UNCG could be what they've been. And he certainly can't get Jack Stevens in foul trouble because that's cost him an ETSU. It's cost him in a few games. If Stevens can stay out of foul trouble, and sometimes we know he's a big guy in the league, it, they tend to call more fouls on big guys than the little guys. So if he can stay out of foul trouble, then certainly I think – that can change the dynamics of how good they could they be. They listed at 270 this year. Jeez. 6'11", 266. That's incredible. Uh, the Citadel. I have a mate. Finished with the exact same record as the other academy in the league overall, but didn't have quite the league success. Still, Hayden Brown averaging a double-double. Their five league wins tied for their most since 2014-15 and five more than they had two years ago when they went winless. It's their first winning season overall since 2008-09 in the 2020-2021 season. They do lose two of their top three scorers, Fletcher A.B. and Caden Rice, who transferred to Georgetown. The only other that's gone, Derek Webster Jr. So Hayden Brown back. Tyler Moff found another year since it was a COVID season. The Mansfield College transfer seemed like it was going to be a one-year stay, but instead he's back to run the point. Stephen Clark back, Rudy Fitzgibbons, Jerry Higgins. Pretty much all their role players, just the big losses being Rice and A.B. So how do you replace all those points? They led the league in points. They had an inside presence last year, unlike many years past. Led the league in blocks, also defended the arc well. Heck, look at night one of the season with that big upset. I think that's going to be more of a blip on the radar than a consistent trend for the Bulldogs. But, again, they did some things last year that were, at least in recent history, a bit unprecedented, and they certainly do have the bodies back and know the system and have their star to be able to continue to push. Well, you look at the box score, and I'm going to drop a name on you. Jason Roche. Have you ever heard of Jason Roche? True freshman, 6'5", 180, Cal Berkeley. Paper mache. In his first college game, he only dropped 27 at Pittsburgh. So, 8 of 14 from 3. That's certainly a big number. We'll see if he can continue that. I'm sure on all the scouting reports, the true freshman probably didn't make a lot of it. And he probably got a few shots off before they figured it out. But if Roche can put up big numbers like that, uh, then I think Caden Rice and some of those other losses aren't that important. Hayden Brown, preseason player of the year. I get it. Talented guy. Another, not a huge fan, not, not a huge fan of what he does on the floor and how hard he plays. I don't know he should have been preseason player of the year, but if they keep pulling off wins like that, then everybody may have to walk that back as well. I think Eighth, about right. Yes. Short answer, Yes. I think they will do Citadel things and knock off people here and there, and then they will lose some head-scratchers. Western Carolina, I'm not sure they're going to win head-scratchers or anything else. Uh, A team many believe could jump up into the top four last year with all the talent they had. It looked like a mess the whole season. How you go 4-13 and in the SoCon with Mason Faulkner, Corey Hightower, Xavier Cork, Cameron Gibson, Matt Halverson, I have absolutely no idea. But a good way is not having any interest in defending. They gave up 79 per game and were worse than the league in scoring margin and field goal percentage defense. After a year like that, you're bound to get some departures. Well, how about all five guys I mentioned? Faulkner, Hightower, Cork, Calverson, Gibson, all gone. Mark Prosser, sensed it was a sinking ship, hops to Winthrop to take the head coaching job there. Others with those five gone, Sincere McMahon also left, sincerely disappointed in the Catamounts, obviously. Kennedy Miles gone, Douglas Elks gone, Daniel Ransom gone, Marcus Thomas gone, Amir Langley gone. And I think I saw him on a roster recently. What was I looking at? USC Upstate. You're going to see Amir Langley. 
at USC Upstate um, in Freedom Hall. Uh, one week from today, I believe that is the Buccaneers' home opener. Tyler McGee also gone. I count four players, Jay Sandos, back from that team. Travion McRae, Tyler Harris, Josh Massey, Brad Halverson. Their top four scorers, top three rebounders gone. This is going to be a project for Justin Gray, longtime player, 13 years as a pro after a playing career at Wake Forest. Just two seasons as an assistant and one as a Dobo at Winthrop before getting this head job at Western. And he inherits very, very, very little in terms of players or support. Very young guy in the coach ranks to get that opportunity now. That could be great, too, because then you get how he relate to the guys, what's style. Just curious, Prosser was more of a iron fist and let's meet for four hours after a loss, and I don't know that that goes well with any player, uh, regardless of what level you're at. Um, but he had to remake the roster, and so there's just so many unknowns right now. And, again, they come out and beat Bowling Green in overtime, 79-71. So you got to give him a lot of credit. Got two double-doubles, Daquan Plowden and Joe Reese, at double-doubles to start, start things off, which is going to be a, a who and a who, right? Because you just they've just not been in the league yet to be able to figure out. No, actually, that's the wrong team. That's why I didn't know who they were. So there you go. Let's look at West Carolina stats. <laughs> still, I was correct. But still two double-doubles. I was just reading the wrong two. Nick Robinson and Joe Patricus. Um, a couple double-doubles. And again, I could have said anybody else because I'm still going who and who because I'm not sure exactly. One's a Kansas State transfer, so I don't know if maybe um, – David Sloan, because he's a Richard Jr. Sloan, now Richard Sr. because of all the COVID stuff. So maybe he has an inside on him. And then a transfer from a grad transfer from Valparaiso with the other double double. So he's just reworking the roster, trying to get what they can get. Tyler Harris off with really a little bit of an injury. He never really got going. I think he has a ton of potential. Um, he's long, athletic, and I'll be curious to see how they go. But the rest of the squad that started were transfers. Transfer from Indiana State, transfer from Valparaiso, a transfer from Kansas State. Then you add in Tyler Harris, who was in there, and then Gilmore was the final uh, starter, and Gilmore was a transfer from the community college, Dodge City. So four of the five, no idea. So West Carolina, the biggest coin flip. They were a train wreck last year. I think it's fair to um, assume that they will be down there. I know they got a big win. We'll see how it plays out over time. But they, just knowing that you didn't know anything in, in Coach Gary, um, or Gray, excuse me, we have a Gary. We have two Garys. We have a Gary and a Gray, right? Justin Gray and Greg Gary. I'm going to mess that up all year. Yeah, you will. So Justin Gray, the new head coach of West Carolina, just didn't know enough about him to really have an opinion on what he brings to the table and then so many new guys. So it will be interesting to see. The bar wasn't set high, so that's the good news for him from Coach Prosser, which they, by the way, tap into another Wake Forest kind of tie at Western Carolina for some reason. Maybe Joe Hugel will be the next guy. I don't know. Uh, that would make a lot more sense than Justin Gray, but okay. we're biased, obviously. Sanford, uh, bottom of the league. You're not surprised I put them down there, are you? I didn't Last. <laughs> uh, you knew even if I thought they'd be improved, they'd be at the bottom of this list. Uh, Buckyball, not for me. Again, even if it were, it doesn't seem like it's much for the players either. Four league wins his first year, a really, really perplexing rotation that saw 13 guys play double-digit minutes per game, and one of their best players, Jalen Dupree, only played 16 per night. Tristan Chambers, Preston Parks, Luke Champion, Dupree, Stanley Anderson, Christian Gassmeyer, and Gordon, all gone. The only two to average more than 10 points per game were Gordon and Gass, so when you lose quality, you replace it with quantity. That always works, from my understanding of things. The roster grows to 20 this year. 
it, it really resembles more of like a soccer roster. Like it, it's pretty incredible how uh, long and obnoxious it is. Uh, last year, they actually did do some things well, despite what I would have you believe. Uh, they led the league in rebounding margin, were fourth in the league in scoring, but they gave up almost 80 points per game, were second to last in the league in three-point shooting and free-throw shooting, and they couldn't defend the arc either. In your understanding of their system, Jay Sandoz, what is the most pressing need to get better at? Because when I think tempo, I think lots of threes. Now, that's not what they did last year. The thing I know, I don't think I know, that this 40 minutes of fury type thing that it seems like Bucky wants to do down there is that you have to create turnovers and play defense. They didn't do those things last year. They want to score. So they want easy opportunity up and down. They want to basically make you play their way and do stuff that's out of your norm and then take advantage of that with – that's sort of like Sanford football. They want to get you doing things you're not supposed to do at a certain speed, and that leads them to either A, defensively not be able to keep up, or A, offensively, because they've scored so quick, you think you have to score quick and you do things out of your norm and it turns the ball over there. So they're very similar styles in football and basketball in what they are trying to accomplish. The one thing I would say is what he's trying to accomplish is have enough guys on staff for every player because he has 19 guys on staff if you include all the managers. It's the largest staff I've ever seen on the sideline before. And they've got some made-up positions, the special assistant, which isn't any of the coaches, then the player development and scouting. I didn't even know that was a thing. Then the internal operations, which is different than the director of basketball of administration, which is different than the mass basketball STC, and then the graduate managers, which there are four, and then you have like eight student managers. Then you finally have an athletic trainer. And then, of course, your senior associate AD for men's basketball communications, Matt Jones. So they've got a lot going on there, and it's a, it's a player per whatever. So – Maybe he believes if you get in the gym and have those guys just run and run and run and somebody just throws you the ball, that that, that works. I, I don't know. I think Bucky Ball last year, the transition from high school to college was different for him. And I think he had to turn over some guys that did not want to play, for lack of a better term, what they perceived a high school coach, which that happens in sports. If you make a major jump from high school to college, and I don't, Really, especially to Division One college. Correct to Division One, maybe more so than Division Three or Division Two or junior college or, or community college or whatever. But to the big jump of Division One, there are things that he probably ran and did that was successful at high school. He wanted to do that. I could see players, right, wrong, or indifferent, just believing that that's a high school. I don't want to play high school ball. I want to play college ball. And so I believe that's probably why you saw some mass exodus. The also sudden change when you're used to scoring a lot as a player and playing a lot of minutes and then you come in and you're sharing a bunch of minutes then you go away because you want to go back to what you're doing and I think this is just he needed to get guys that were willing to buy in to say look I want you to play hard for 18 to 22 minutes that's what it's going to be that's what you have to do and go and so I think he went out and got some of those guys because if you look at and one of them being Quez Glover who's local from Knoxville but they scored 99 points exhibition game. They had 10 guys with 18 minutes or more. Now, the starters did play more than what they were playing last year, but we'll see if that changes um, sort of the change. That's sort of – I remember talking to Shaka Smart during one of the holding court things before he went on with uh, Dr. Sander, 
and ask him, hey, what's the difference in Texas? And, you know, you're not rotating as many guys. And he was like, well, when you get to that level and you get those type players, you can't do that. At VCU, he can play 12 players and nobody cares. But when you get to Texas and you get a five-star recruit, and a five-star recruit doesn't play 25, 30 minutes, then that five-star recruit's going somewhere else. So he had to change, and honestly, not as good a coach at we saw as Texas. And not because I think he can't coach. I think he got hamstrung by players that he couldn't do what he wants to do. I think that's a little similar here. Coach, um, the old buckyball wasn't transitioning to the players that were there with Coach Pageant, and now he's getting players that he can get to buy into his system. Did have a wide variety of transfers. One of those you mentioned, Quez Glover. I did have to look twice when I saw that headline that Quez Glover was going to Sanford. That's a good get. I mean, he was a consensus three-star guy, went to Florida, and they also have five other transfers in. So I have to give credit to Bucky there as much as you hear me have to pause and take a deep breath before I do so because that is a good get, and he was their guy in the first uh, game of the year against Maryville. But I just – don't see the system working. I, I don't think, and Shaka Smart is brilliant, right? And everything he did at VCU was phenomenal and semi-unprecedented. Um, so I certainly believe him that at VCU you can do those types of things that he did um, at the time that he did them. I'm not sure in 2021-22 at a Division One level at any school, specifically in the Southern Conference, maybe Maybe I'll draw the line at the Southern Conference because it's convenient for me in this argument, obviously. Top ten leagues in the land. Can you do that? I don't think so. You get down to, sure, the SWAC or the you know, NEC or um, the MEAC, the, the really furthest removed from solid Division One contending basketball. Can you there? Maybe because guys just happen to be Division One, right, and go and get to get some cool experiences. And I'm saying this as someone that played Division Three and didn't have any money and any benefits or anything like that and was just happy to play the sport. So I'm coming from a little bit of a similar mindset there in the fact that you're just happy to be there. You're playing Division One. This is a dream come true. I'm going to do whatever I have to do because this place gave me a chance. But you get up to even this level, I'm just not sure it's going to work. Um, so yeah. well, let me ask you this, though. How do you feel about the fact that they got – the 60th ranked player in the nation, a four-star, to sign on. Now, you know, his uncle is now on the staff. And let's be honest, that happens a lot in basketball. I'm I not feel there's knocking, a bit of there, Jay. I'm, I'm going to be honest I'm with not you. knocking <laughs> that because that's a thing that happens. But he was ranked 60th overall in the nation, 13th at his position by major publications. It's the biggest signee, I would argue. Now, DeSosa was ranked higher, but he's transferring in. There have been a few other high-ranked guys to transfer in, but just as a pure freshman to sign, I think it had to raise some eyebrows. And he had 15 points in his first collegiate game, and so I'm curious to see how Cardet plays. Yeah, Wesley Cardet and Quez Lover, again, really good gets. But I think that guys of that magnitude are going to get pretty sick and tired of Bucky's BS, if we're quite honest. And that's what I think it is. So if he proves me wrong, I will come on air and be the first to admit, wow, Buckyball is the greatest thing to ever have come around, and boy, did he shove it up my rear end in a very quick fashion. Well done, Bucky McMillan. But until that time, uh, yes, I am naysaying. No one will naysay the Southern Conference this year, and if they do, they're insane. Seven of the nine teams that played on night one were victorious. The only two that were not, Mercer, that obviously was up at the half against number 16, Arkansas, ended up having a tough second half, lost by 13, but it was 36-28. At the break, they were in position. Um, and
that the only team that did win? I, I just yeah, w- only team that did win. Was I just Rose. want to state for the record that Zach Gillian is the uncle. Uh, he was the assistant coach at the high school last year and makes the jump to Division One to get uh, Cardet. So eight of nine teams win. The only team to not have tipped off ETSU, which comes on Friday night. We got to finish up our wrap up to the Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater blowout. Count up to the season is about to conclude. Jay Sandos. All right, let's go. What do we got? Bold predictions coming up? No, no Buck the, the Buzzer Beater. The Buzzer Beater. The Buzzer Beater. Basketball blow. Yeah. I mean, we can. I'm a, one of his assistants got a head coaching job. <laughs> okay. How do you right. Division one. Chicago blowout. State. This is the final B5 Buck Basketball Buzz Beer Blowout yep. of the lead up to the season because the 2021 22 year starts tomorrow against Appalachian State. Hope you've enjoyed this whole count up to the season like we have. Uh, this is the most special season of ETSU men's basketball of my time here, Jay Sandos, that we're going to chronicle the first of the last two years that we're going through, 2019-20. Where does it rank in yours? 2019-20, as far as medium, probably my – it's in my top two. I think it barely edges out the 9-10 the, the year where you lost to Pittsburgh. I'd probably put that third. My first year was the 0203, and the Bucks had not been in the tournament 11, 12 years and been terrible. And that was my first year, kind of riding that wave. That was my favorite year. That obviously helped land me 20 years ago to getting this job. So that's going to be my favorite. And then the 30 and 14 was so special. I think that was just being along for the ride with the guys and with the staff and everything. I think that the, the only reason I think it's edged out is just probably my nostalgia for that first year there really aren't a lot of bad moments to talk about in the lead up to the one buzzer beater this season had to offer played it tight against kansas at allen Fieldhouse, lost by 12 but that was a really encouraging result we're down i think only five with like six minutes to go lost to ndsu on the road on a stretch that brought the bucks from little rock arkansas to charleston south carolina to fargo north dakota in a week's time lost conference games to Furman and mercer but literally everything else was a win that year including a beating of LSU at the Pete Maravich Center and three straight wins in the SoCon tournament in which the Bucks led by double digits in the second halves of games for all but nine minutes and 31 seconds of the 60. Nine minutes and 15 of those seconds came against Wofford in the final. Not to say that ETSU is that much better than everyone else, but they were that much better than everyone else in the Southern Conference. Tied the greatest season in Southern Conference history in terms of win total with 30. The Bucks clearly the dominant team as they took the SoCon postseason crown. They'd also win the regular season championship, courtesy of this. Bucks will try to hustle. Pat Good and the Bucks down two with 10 seconds. Good to Tisdale. Back to Good. Good. Pull up trigger for a three. He got him with 6.8. Can you top this? Pat Good, another three. 26 points on seven made triples. Patrick Good, 17 points in the final, 4 minutes and 16 seconds. And remember, in the midst of that onslaught from Good, the Bucks were still down 7 with 2 minutes to play. And 
and he drained three more threes to win it. That three coming right after Travion McRae hit a three to give Western the lead with just 12 seconds to go. I said it at the time, and I'll say it again now. I still believe this to be the greatest regular season win in ETSU men's basketball history. Steve Forbes agreed with me. <laughs> George Steve You're outnumbered. Steve Forbes. Uh, I'm You're sure, outnumbered. I'm sure he did agree. Okay, well, then there's no real argument then if, if, if you guys agree. Two guys that have been here for uh, combined, what, nine I, years? I, 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 like I, don't, I don't even know why I'm here. So, uh, I mean, I think the dramatic for winning the championship, again, and we could talk about it, there was the one-game play-in the OVC had to have where the teams had to meet halfway when um, – and, and ironically, I told the story about the game. I didn't realize my dad actually rode with Madison Brooks' wife to the game, and I probably could have had him actually talk about the game since he was at both of them. But it's obviously one of the biggest moments, one of the biggest games, how it ended, what it meant, the championship, everything that, that went into it. Hometown kid done good, all the good fun stuff, right? So it's up there. I'm not going to argue that. You, you get into the, the most, just like the most the greatest team or the greatest stretches, I mean – the TBT team were having arguments over if the 2017 team was better or the 2020 team was better. And I, at that point, I'm like, come on, guys. Like, let, let's calm it down. Like, when you start yelling at each other over which one of you are the better team as opposed to just enjoying it, I mean, obviously you play more games because I, the 0304 team, if they had two more games, would have won 30 games. If a couple misters teams would have played a few more games, they would have won 30 games. So some of it's pure that. Um, but it, it's hard to argue that it's not one of the three best teams ever in the history of ETSU basketball. And the bad thing is, if they win a game, you probably trump everything in the tournament. The seed they would have got, I mean, I think the previous highest seed ETSU had was a 10. So if they were to get a single-digit seed, which it seemed like they were They in, were lined for like an 8 or 9 in all the right, previous Right, so they had a chance to be a single-digit seed, which had never happened before. If they win a game, it would be the only other time than the upset, obviously. Um, and now they did win one in the 60, whatever that was, the 68 year. Um, they got to Sweet 16. And then, of course, they beat Arizona in the 14-3, which is still one of the top ten greatest upsets of all time, and then lost to the Fab Five, which they forfeit. So, technically, Sweet 16 team, two years in the two times they've gone now. Still waiting for the banner from the Wolverines. Still blue and gold. Send the dang thing down. You can't hang it up. doesn't matter. So, that being said, uh, it was a shame that it got can- – the takeaway is it was one of the greatest teams of all time that felt lacking because they couldn't finish it. They won the championship. They were one of the few teams that 100% had qualified. I think that's the other fun thing, too, was there were very few tournaments that finished that you were automatic. Now, yes, I know the top ten teams were going to be – some other teams were going to be in, but there weren't that many teams that got in. It's just unfortunate that you weren't able to kind of play that out in the tournament due to COVID. Yeah, COVID just a couple of days later. Uh, that really for Pat Good, the seminal moment of his career, local favorite, of course, went to App State for his first year, transferred to ETSU, sat out 2017-18. Actually didn't remember this, but he was third-team all-SOCON in the 2018-19 season, averaged 10 points per game. That the year he broke the single-game three-point record against Western Carolina for ETSU history, making 11. Up and down final year in 2019-20, became a dad, had a long streak of ineffectiveness around that time, but bounced back in the final month of the season and – Whatever he does at Winthrop this year, as he's back in college basketball following the year off, I think regardless of anything else, he's always going to be remembered by the game winner and that four-minute span in which he was really the (laughs) greatest shooter, it seemed like, to ever hold a basketball. I mean, Patrick Good is going to be synonymous with that year, that game, 
um, and just the incredible things it seemed like he could do when he was in his own. Well, and he you know, still holds, what, the school record for made threes in a single game. He did that at Western Carolina. He just loved Western Carolina. And I think that whenever he could play Western Carolina, I think he just somehow got a little extra juice. But because he set the record the year before there, and, you know, it's, I think because of him being local and some of the things he did locally for Dave, David Crockett High School, and then certainly some of the big shots he had at ETSU, now kind of unfortunate or odd, I guess he's going with Coach Prosser, who is now the head coach at one bit. Can't beat him, join him. That's what Mark Prosser said. I feel like Western has always been at the mercy of Patrick Good, so I better get him. Then there was last year. No buzzer beaters. Ladarius Brewer came oh so close to one in the final regular season game at Freedom Hall. From about 28 feet, rise and fires. Time expired over Isaiah Miller, but it rimmed out, and the Bucks would lose in overtime, 85-74. to A season that started with the Bucks losing three of four, saw them then win three of four to round out non-conference play, start league play by winning six of their first seven, finish it by losing six of their last eight in the regular season, wind up as the five seed as a streaky team tends to beat a minimized Chattanooga roster that was missing a couple of their top scorers, then lose to a team of destiny, much like ETSU was the year before, and Wofford the year before that, UNCG last year. And now, Jay Sandos, you've got tree live. 15 years of Buccaneer basketball. If you're not juiced up and fully prepared for the season, I'm not sure what it'll take. Uh, we kind of went through last year in our preview of the Southern Conference. And by the way, we are going to do a Southern Conference preview of conference action going into league play as we did last year right around um, the holidays. We have a lot more to go on than this show. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, with ETSU, we're going to really start getting into every single show, breaking down what happened, what will happen, recaps, previews, player performances, so on and so forth. If you're new to the show, that does happen once basketball season kind of kicks in. But right now we're about an hour and 45 minutes into this podcast. Let's quickly do uh, bold predictions. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch and hit. Mark it down. Plus 10 here. Hit a buck 20 max. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered for the U.S. national team is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. A newly fit Jay Sandoz will never scout another drive at Johnson City Country Club Senior Tour. Here we come. All right, I'm going to go through this quickly. We've got a long show. ETSU, most rushing yards since football's been back, 410. They will have 411 or more. ETSU's most total yards since football's ah, been back. Like. They had 574 against Kentucky Wesleyan. They had 558 earlier this year against the Citadel. They're most against an FCS opponent. They will break both. So 575 or more. It's going to be a bad day for Wofford. Jalen Adams is going to rush for three touchdowns and put the final nail in Coach Conklin's coffin. Three touchdowns. Okay, so it's the, the prediction is just three touchdowns, not the final nail, right? Or do you think he'll be fired that same day? I don't think he'll be fired okay, that same day. Okay, so the three touchdowns. It will Adams. be the final nail because they're not going to beat Carolina. There's no sense firing him before Carolina. So. Fair. Uh, have the Oklahoma Sooners turned a corner? 
They've won their last three by double digits after only beating Western Carolina by double digits in their first six games. I say no. The Sooners favored by five and a half at Baylor. The Bears will win by seven or more. Matt Williams, Miami Dolphins. Tonight, we record Thursday. Thursday night football over a touchdown underdog. They will upset the Baltimore Ravens. Mm, interesting. The team to score the most points in a game this season in the NFL, you should be able to name it. The Patriots? Your New England Patriots. They will be the lowest scoring team in the NFL this week. I don't even remember who they're playing. I just Cleveland. Against the Patriots. Oh, yeah, Cleveland. That's right. Who shut down a much better offense than New England possessed Let's last calm week. Let's calm it down. Calm it down. Calm it down. Let's go, calm Browns. Let's go, Browns. The mistake at the lake is going straight to the northeast, and they're going to make it a mistake inside of Foxborough. Cage those foxes. Send those Patriot Wilds veterans. Uh, all so all I know is you're going to be very disappointed when the Pats are back in the playoffs. Where they I will be extremely disappointed if that happens. There is absolutely you and everybody else want the sky to fall. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm, I, Belichick versus Brady. Who's going to take Belichick's side? Go Brady, go Bucks. Everybody. Everybody go Belichick. Belichick. What are you talking about? All right, uh, when we come back Monday, we'll recap basketball, men's, women's, football, all that and more on Santos and the Sidekick. On the Buccaneers Network.